guys. Very welcome back to the show. I have Chris Nelson returning again, and I also am joined by Jack Kilby from Great North Wrestling and from the Hannibal TV, who's going to be doing some interviews for me. So I'm really looking forward to that. But today we're going to have a duo interview with Mr. Chris Nelson here, a great storyteller from last time. And Chris, thanks for coming back on as well, man. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm just glad that you accepted the check you know, in order to get me on for a second episode. Um, my mommy told me I could I could be whatever I wanted to be. I just have to pay for it. So thank you for taking that and having me back. Oh, are we live? Did I say that live? I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. It's all good. Look, we're gonna start out we're gonna start off with Jack tonight then because Jack obviously has different things that he's kind of pieced together that we didn't talk about last time. So Jack, I'll let you fire away there with the first question. Bring it on, Jack. Yeah, Chris. I uh, after reviewing your your body of work, uh, there there's a number of questions that come to mind uh, immediately. But we've heard a lot about the atmosphere in Center Stage in Atlanta, and I know that you worked uh, numerous uh, tapings there, and just uh, wanted to get your thoughts on that atmosphere, which seems to have taken on uh, almost a mythological proportion of its own in your particular experience when you worked there, how you got booked, and some of your your notable matches that may come to memory. Oh, I love, love Center Stage. It was, it was just wonderful because if you were at Center Stage, all the guys, well, first I got booked um, right after my 18th birthday, the second day after my 18th birthday. And um, I got booked through the Cuban assassin, a man named Frankie Reyes. There's basically a tryout in Tampa to get new guys. And I'm one of the guys that they picked. And um, so I got in, what was the question again? See, I totally got in, it's early. <laughs> Center stage. So yeah, so that's how I got in. And what we would do is to get to Atlanta, um, we would all ride together. Dave Penzer, ring announcer, Bob Cook. It was always Dave and Bob, and then there would be one or two extra people, or three, depending on how long we were going for. But for like four years, it was every week back and forth, and um, always with Bob Cook and uh, with Dave Penzer. And we all stayed at the same hotel, so we would go to center stage, and then we would have the hotel – it was a Ramada in Atlanta by the airport, and it was $25 a night, period, for wrestlers. So wow. year-round, we all stayed, the WWF, WCW guys, we all stayed there. Sometimes you would have where WWF and WCW guys were there at the same time. That was only there for one of those, but it was pretty fun. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Um Center stage was a was a hole in the wall at, at the time when you've got 70 guys in there all dressing. You know, it's they had um, I'd say the jobber locker room had a bunch of mirrors with the lights on it, just like in Hollywood. Um, so it was pretty well lit like that. But besides that, it was like really dark and dreary. And, you know, whatever people they could round up that night to get in there and, you know, whether it be kids groups or homeless people or whatever. I mean, it was always full. It was mm. always, full. And, you know, you had your fans that would come there. There were always fans that were there. And then there were all the rats that were there too. 
Um, trust me, they were there. And that was every probably once a match, they would pan to the rats so that people at home would see that, wow, look, good looking women do go to wrestling matches. So they would mm. show them like all, all, all of my videos, they cut off of me and they go right to the rats. And, you know, I used to, they used to cut me off and I went right to the rats myself. But um, it was, so I mean, it was just like, it, it, it was just a crazy place. It was, it was just fun. It was like the last of the outlaws. You know, it was the last of the, the 70s and 80s guys, the Blackjack Mulligans, and, you know, um, just people like that, people that I grew up loving that now I'm sitting there, I'm 18 years old, and I'm like, dude, Blackjack's an agent, and Mike Graham's an agent, you know, and it's like, it, it's just, I mean, it was just, I can't even put it into words, it's, especially for an 18-year-old. It's not like I got in at 25 after I went to college or I had, you know, five years of work experience. I went literally right out of high school. A month later, I'm in the ring on a rope. So, I mean, that was, it was fun times. I had a great time, especially at that time, because in WCW, you made $150 a night. That was it. And a lot of times you'd pay a booking fee, which was standard in the industry, um, you know, just to people that, were the ones in charge. I mean, you know, so 25 bucks of that. So now it's 25 bucks for the hotel. It's 25 bucks for the booking fee. You're going to be gone for two days. All right. So now you got to put gas in the vehicle and food. So right now you're about hundred dollars in the hole for day one. And you haven't mm. even gone out drinking yet. You know, day <laughs> one, we probably went to, we probably did a show in like, in like Albany, Georgia, or or something like that, and then went right back to the to the dungeon, the hotel, and that was you know that was all the time. That was a two day trip, Mobile and Atlanta. It was always something in Atlanta, you know, and all, it was always center stage. I like center stage. I really did. I it it was like a Roman Coliseum on three sides. You know, so and most of the time I was laying down looking up. So, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> I, I got to see a lot of the architecture there. So, I, you know, I thought that that, you know, post 80s, you know, type of depressing motif, you know, I really didn't like it. They need to change the ceiling tiles. So one one supplemental question uh, before I turn it back to uh, Maurice's. Is it true that uh you, you touched on it uh, briefly that they basically would gather people up from the community and bring them in. But the question that I have is I've read that they coached the fans when to uh, cheer and when to boo. Is, is that correct? Or how did those responses that seemed anyway on television to be on point, how did those come about post-production or is that urban legend true? No, yeah, no, they would they would get them to the best of their ability in Atlanta. You know, they wouldn't tell them to boo. They just wanted them to make noise. That's it. They just wanted them to make noise. And the people that didn't know, for the people that didn't know whether to boo or cheer, there was enough people around that could tell them, all right, we're going to boo this guy or we're going to cheer this guy. 
and they were just told to make noise. So if other people are booing, they're going to join in. You know, the Disney mm-hmm. crowd, when we would do tapings down at Disney, that was completely different because they were a part of the show. You know, they were a part of the of the production and they were always, you know, you could tell them to swallow cyanide and they would do it. You know, um, that was the loudest pop I ever got in WCW was um, me me against Triple H. And I guess because I had been out there earlier in the day or they had been seeing it. But for whatever reason, they announced me. I went like this and the place erupted. And I'm like looking like this. So I actually did a all the way around the ring you know, at the people, because I'm like, holy crap. And you done, you know, it's usually, you know, I get two steps out and it's fuck you, fat ass. I mean, you know, Disney was something totally different though. Ah, sorry. I got off again on a tangent. Sorry about that. We we took a we took a tangent at the start of the show where I was mentioning people that I dug up in the industry to try and unearth their stories. And I brought up Muffy. And it turns out that you worked a, a segment with her. Do you want to tell people about that segment and how it came about? Maybe was there any kind of influence from Stephanie? Yeah. Okay. So it, they wanted to do something. Basically, what <laughs> Kevin Kelly, my man, my friend, my good friend, he pulls me to the side and he goes, Okay, fat ass, do you want to wrestle? Or do you want to do a, a vignette? And I'm like, duh, want to do a vignette. So they took me off the list, whatever they're wrestling. And so they said, all right, we're going to do this in one take. You got Stephanie and Muffy sitting on a, a road case and they're having a conversation. And I walk by and I'm digging in another road case. And she goes, hey, who are you? Do you work here? And I'm like, yeah, on the lighting crew. And she's like, God, you're fat. You're slovenly. I can't believe you work for WWF. This is my personal trainer, Muffy. Now you're a personal trainer. So then she starts, well, I don't know what your name is, but I call you fat ass, you know, whatever. And she starts punching me in the stomach and starts making me do jumping jacks. And as soon as I start, I got my tongue hanging out. And Kevin Kelly's like, he's going to die. He's going to die. I mean, you know, it was good. One take, one minute. And then I go up to get my pay. This is my favorite part. I tell you what, there's no HR department in, in the old WWF. I can tell you that right now. There's no HIPAA laws or anything like that because when you went to get paid, you would sign the sheet and you had usually had Arnold Scullin with the money and you had someone like Tony Gurria or somebody, one of the agents would tell Arnold Scullin the name and how much you're getting paid. And Arnold's going with it. Okay. And so he's calling all the, all the jobbers, all the enhancement guys, guys that are getting ready to go out there and wrestle for 10 minutes or five minutes or get killed by Vader or something. And I just happen to be at the end and they're going down and everyone's getting, all right, Buck Quarterman 250. And they just say, Buck Quarterman 250, you know, and they're counting it out and all the guys are there. And then it gets to me. He goes, Chris Nelson, 500. And he goes, 
What? Chris Nelson, 500. I mean, everybody catering, everyone heard it. And they're like, damn, how is he getting 500 for doing five jumping jacks? And everyone else is out there busting their ass. And I'm like, damn, Kevin Kelly got me heat. I didn't even mean to. I mean, damn, I thought I did a good job. I was ready for my acting award, you know? I mean, shit, you know, I take verbal abuse very well. Should have seen me on Jerry Springer. It was great. <laughs> was that the biggest payday that you got there then? Um, no. I think I got seven fifty one night. Um, I think I got seven fifty for wrestling and then carrying the Undertaker out like on a thing. Oh, okay. like so a you druid. Were double, or, you were double, you know, double job. Yeah, it was a double. It was it was one of those where I was standing there at the thing. I did I did it a couple times, so I don't remember which one it was, but usually if I did that I didn't wrestle. But Sometimes I did, so it just, you know, matter what. But, yeah, WWF 750, and it was cash. I mean, that's the best part. The WCW was a check you would get in two weeks. So, you know, once you get that, if you go for two days, once you get that $300 check in, you're already, you know, $200 in a hole. So, you know, you put that in, and then you hope that, you know, you can talk to your bank about getting rid of the fees because the damn check bounced. I mean, you know my check bounced, you know, not WCW, but it was nice to see that Ted Turner stamp, you know, but it would have been nicer if it had more zeros behind it. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, if you're on, I think if you're on TV, WCW, WWF at the time, if you're on there, then you're one of the best in the world at whatever you do. If you're if you're a guy that goes up there and you're the shits, you last one time, you never come back, you know. And I've seen it happen to a bunch of people. Um, I've heard about it happening to, to a bunch of people. Then you got guys that, you know, <sighs> you got guys that I get lost. I told you, what were we talking about? Ah, oh, we and just we, we, we went off on a little tangent. That's fine. Was I? Yeah. Dude, oh, oh, you're two hundred dollars in the hole, and you know that's just the way it was. But it didn't matter about the money, you know, for WCW at the time because that was the first person that the first company that said, "Hey, come work for me," was you know WCW. And then once you got WWF now, paying two fifty a night plus your airplane, your food, your rental car your gas, everything, and you're getting 250 a night. Sometimes you're working twice, getting 500, getting 750, something like that, you know? I mean, the choice to me was easy. And what happened was I was on two WCW programs and two WWF programs on the same weekend. So I was on four times on TV and the other the other company saw it and the other company saw it so the next time i was there wcw told me i had to quit going to wwf and wwf told me i had to quit going to wcw and i told them both that i quit the other one and i just <laughs> prayed that i hoped and prayed that it didn't get you know that it wasn't i didn't get caught you know but i was just a small fish they didn't give a shit about me you know they they didn't care. They just didn't want any of, any of us working for WWF because they were in such a, you know, a heated war. 
And it's like, listen, that's between y'all. I'm an independent contractor. I'm trying to get paid. You know, I'm trying to get my name out there. I'm trying to get on TV. You know, I'm going to double dip as much as I can. You know, if I had to make a choice, I would have chose WWF, of course. You know, even though I learned more about wrestling and I learned more about how to work, especially on TV, in WCW. But the money and, you know, the machine, I would have taken WCW. I mean, I would have taken WWF, obviously. Yeah. You know, I love WCW, though. Don't get me wrong. I do. You want to take it away, Jack? Yeah, I... This is a uh, this is you kind of touched on a point that I was going to raise later on, but and and excuse me if um, this is repetitious from your your first interview, but I've had the pleasure of interviewing some really quality quote unquote um, enhancement guys, including Barry Horowitz, Reno Riggins, and and others. And the question this is this is a two two prong question, one being. Do, do you concur that the business is suffering today with, in terms of the big companies, uh, in terms of the lack of enhancement talent that is utilized on their television programs? And I know it's a, a different paradigm in terms of ratings and, and quarter hours and key demos and all that stuff, but notwithstanding the, the role that uh, fellows like you played in getting talent over and creating interest so that's part of the question. Second question is, would, would you not think that uh, any wrestling hall of fame should include individuals that, that were the, the enhancement guys, the mechanics that created uh, a lot of, you know, the interest in the quote unquote stars that, that later would go on to take those upper card positions. Yeah. It, shorten up the first one again so I because I had the answer all in my head and then I was thinking about the second one again what was the first part of the question the the, the first sorry the first part of the question was do you think that uh, the the industry is suffering today because of a lack of enhancement matches enhancement and matches. quality enhancement talent I absolutely do and it's not because you know I'm trying to stick up for jobbers but I think that to get certain talent over, you need jobbers. You need people to go out there that are going to take an ass whooping. Because I've seen some people that, let's say you got two people in NXT and they're very close, you know, and the one has to put the other one over because they're pushing the one. So this one's a little bit upset because he's not getting pushed. You know, so he's not going to go out there and sell like Ricky Morton. He's going to go out there and, you know, but if there was a jobber there, an enhancement talent, someone like that who is there strictly to put him over, then you could go out there, put the guy over like a monster, and the guy is going to be bumping his ass off and selling like Ricky Morton because he wants to get noticed. You know, that's what, that's what all guys that are losing, they – they would love just to be noticed for something, you know? And I mean, James Ellsworth, I mean, it, it worked out for him for a little while. I mean, just things like that. I like that. 
you know, um, WCW even tried to do the underdog tournament um, where they would pick guys against each other, like a Mark Starr and a Bob Cook and stuff like that. And I can't remember how long it even went or who got it. Somebody ended up winning. I don't remember who it was, but that was, you know, that was nice of them because it was a Saturday night thing. And, you know, that was that was a thank you to the guys like Bob Cook that are out there every freaking show. And trust me, Bob Cook never missed a show. I'm telling you that right now. He never missed a show, ever. Even if it was, you know, freaking, even if he had to walk there from Tampa to Atlanta, he would have been there. And that was Bob. And he was respected by WWF and by WCW. And WWF loved having him. And I wish they would have used him better because he could have made so many people. He could have made great talent. You know, we had some great guys come out of Florida. Bob Cook, Jeff Bradley, Buck Quartermain. I mean, those three right there. And if people don't know them, look them up. Because those guys are the real deal. I was a fat guy with nobody that could take some pretty good bumps and could tell a good story. But I wasn't going to go out there and, and, you know, I wasn't Hulk Hogan. I didn't want to be like that. You know, I didn't. I hated the gym. I never wanted to go to the gym. You know, I just wanted to have fun, and I wanted to have – it didn't have to be the best technical match of the night, but I wanted people, when they're driving home in their car, and they're talking about the matches, and they're, yeah, that about – I want to say, but that damn Chris Nelson, when he went out there and had his pants pulled down and did this and, you know, whatever it was, that's what I want. That's, I want, that's what I want in their head on the drive home because when they come next time that's good for me you know what i'm saying i mean it's like i don't know how i got off on that one but yes the i think definitely all companies need enhancement talent you may not need them as much as you did but there is a spot for them and there's a need for them there really is not a terrible need but with the right, yes, yes, something, it could be good. It could be good. I mean, AEW has got a lot of people. You know, I don't know, I don't know, they got a lot of shows too, but they've, they've elevated a lot of guys that were jobbers that went out there and got killed, you know, in 15 seconds, and they liked something about them, and now they got jobs, and that's, I like that. Wrestling is now about, any size, you know, male, female, anything, any size person now can be an employed wrestler making a good living on TV. In my day, that never would have flied. You know, even when I was in shape at 230 pounds and actually had a body on me, I was way too small. I was six inches too short and 30 or 40 pounds too unmuscular even when i was you mm-hmm. know looking okay i was never a bodybuilder but i looked all right i looked okay i tell myself that so so the second part of the question is do you ever foresee a time when uh maybe not the wwe hall of fame but uh, the international 
Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Albany, New York, that that we'll be covering. Do, do you for do you foresee uh, an induction there of enhancement talent for the the recognition of what they've contributed to the industry? Absolutely, because that's going to be about people, and it's going to be picked by people, not by a corporation. You know, not by you know because they somebody wants a financial gain from it these are they're going to give it to people that deserve it and the backbone of any promotion is the guy that goes out there and goes goes under you know the guy that is not afraid to go out there and lose i never even in front of a 130 pound guy i never had a problem losing um if you remember um Tony Marinara from ECW, very skinny guy. I put him over on TV when I was champion, clean pin in the middle of the ring. The promoter did not want me to do it. He said, it didn't make sense. I said, yes, it does. So we're going to make this kid tonight. And that's what we did. We went out there. The kid pinned me. The place erupted. Now the next week I came back and I beat his ass like the jobber that he was at the time. But that puts some asses in the seats. You know what I'm saying? These guys can do that. And that's the whole basis of a jobber. And this Hall of Fame, I feel, is definitely going to think about that a lot more than, well, this guy sold a whole bunch of dolls. You know what I'm saying? I would love to see, I would I would love to see Chris Colt get inducted into a Hall of Fame. Because that guy was amazing that guy was amazing and you cannot find a chris colt autograph out there they are so hard to find i have one um it's actually wow. it's actually one when he was uh hell's angel number one and it signed on yeah. a on a program on his picture also with crybaby george cannon on his picture so but chris colt is i you know i don't think he ever won but he made every superstar in Portland from Billy Jack, Chris Adams. I mean, any baby face that came through there, Chris Colt was amazing. He did the same thing in Memphis when he was down there, in Canada when he was up there, in Detroit. The guy was just amazing, and he lost every night. But he should be in there. He should be in there, without a doubt. Barry Horowitz, without a doubt should be in there because Barry had good runs everywhere. Florida, USWA, Georgia, Barry had great runs. And Barry is amazing. Amazing in the ring. Absolutely amazing. And I only got to wrestle him once, which was crazy. And it was on an, an independent show in Florida. And we went out there and did 20 minutes and it was absolutely great. And that was a check off of my bucket list because I grew up watching him you know, I didn't want to tell him that, but I did, you know, they don't, no one likes to hear that. You know, I, when I was a kid, I used to watch it. I mean, you know, nobody wants to hear that crap. You know, I, believe me, I know people who used to watch me on TV are like, literally they would be 30 years old now. You know, like if, if they started, they were born right then when I started, they'd be 30 years old. That's crazy. Cause I'm only 47. So, no, I'm 48. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, 48. Almost, I'll be 49 in December. All right, so, yes, I think that they need, without a doubt, without a doubt. Hall of Fame, Barry Horowitz. Um, I know that Johnny Rods is in there, is in the WWF one. Um, of, of course, he deserves it. Um, God. Even a Chick Donovan. Chick Donovan... He was a southern guy, southern United States, but he was over everywhere he went, and he's still wrestling. He's wrestling. Yeah, unbelievable. Seventy unbelievable. years old. You know, yeah. God bless him. I I have zero interest in wrestling, and you know the offers do come up. I about once a year now I'll get an offer. I've been retired for five years. Should have been retired a lot longer than that, but I'll get an offer, and. It's just not worth it. I have too many back issues. Um, I have too many head issues with memory and freaking out and seeing things. And, you know, I mean, it's, I've got a lot of damage and I definitely don't need to be in a ring, but I do get a lot of offers. I mean, um, I wish, I wish it was offers to do porn, um, but <laughs> It's kind of like porn. I mean, they want me to put on spandex and come out there in front of them. So, you know, maybe like a leather fetish type of thing. I could probably do that. Um, I could introduce you to some of the guests I've had on this podcast. I've had talked to a lot of I, I have seen some of your guests. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a different note, anyway, aside from the porn, we'll put the porn on the shelf for a minute. Um, I, when I was looking through your, like, matches and where you've been and i noticed that in 1993 you're in wwf and then after that time the whole steroid trial happened with vince and all that kind of stuff and then you were back kind of bookended then in 94 when it was all kind of wrapped up what was the environment like there around that time with all that unwanted attention on the business it was it, uh, you know i tried my best to stay out of the way I would, I would always sit like in a corner, but I would always listen. So you hear people, you know, you hear people that are, are worried because if, you know, if he goes to jail, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like they felt the company's going to fall apart and it probably would, you know, um, it probably, it, I don't know. They say that, um, that Jerry Jarrett was going to come in, but, you know, Bruce denies that. I don't know. I think I think Jerry could have done a really good job, uh, but he probably just would have been doing what Vince said. But you know, I mean, I think he could have done could have done a good job. Yeah, I don't Vince know. Would have yeah, still, it, Vince it, would it have still just, it, it was prison. definitely a weird time. It, it was definitely a weird time. You know, it, unlike unlike no other. And I was very new there at that time, so you know, I really tried to, you know, just. Stay in my stay in my lane, you know. I'm just I'm over here. I'm gonna go out and work hard, and I'm gonna listen, but I ain't gonna talk. Yeah, they used to pick on me too. The guys I used to wrestle with, they would pick on me. They're like, "You're totally different when we're in a Fed locker room than you are in the other locker room." I mean, like other normal locker rooms, you got strippers in here, and you're, you know, you're partying and and doors are locked and the people can't get in broom closets and stuff like that. And 
And he said, here, you're literally just sitting in a corner like a choir boy. I'm like, wait till you see me at the bar tonight, I guess. You did say, you did actually say something about a broom closet before we started as well. And now I'll bring it up about potentially wrestler's court. What happened there? All right. Story has never been told publicly. <laughs> so we were driving. All right. I used to work for Jerry Springer. I worked for him for three seasons. And um, I had booked a lot of people on the show. So I had a stripper that had come over to my house and we were supposed to fly to Chicago. Well, it was snowing in Chicago and it was doing some snowing of another kind down in Florida with the stripper at, at my house. <laughs> now for three days, she's at my house. Okay. While we're trying yeah. to get on a plane and it's snowing in Florida. So we hooked up and I could not perform. Okay, let's put it that way, because of the drugs. So I basically just took care of her in other ways. She was very happy, and that was it. Well, somehow, when we're driving, we're driving to Lafayette, Louisiana. It's me, my tag team partner, Vito Danucci, the Black Nature Boy, Scoot Andrews, and Marvelous Mike Sullivan. These are four of Florida's best. All right. And we're just telling stories. So I, I just tell them this story that just happened to me. And I'm telling them the full story. I'm like, dude, we were so bored. I cooked her dinner. I made like a meatloaf and stuff. And then I said, hey, you want to go to the, let's go to the lake and we'll go feed the ducks. Trust me, the story's worth it. It's long, but it's worth it. So, hey, let's go feed the ducks, you know? So I'm telling this story. And then finally they go, listen, you had a stripper at your house. For three days, naked in your bed, and you didn't fuck her? You didn't fuck her. And then I explained to them the same thing I just explained to you. Pharm pharmaceutically, I couldn't. All right? So they gave me shit. So we're in Lafayette, Louisiana, and Scoot Andrews decides, just because I left him on the side of the highway with his with his penis hanging out and him trying to run and pee at the same time while I'm driving off in the middle of the bayou in Louisiana in the swamps. So he's mad at me, all right? He's mad as hell. So he goes and tells Devon the story of me and the stripper. And Devon's like, nah, this shit ain't right. We gonna get in tomorrow night. He going to wrestle court. Taker gonna know this shit. Nah, this shit ain't right. He's going to have to defend himself. So I'm, I'm freaking out. So the next night, we're in Mobile, Alabama. And I, I get there early. As soon as we got there, I went and I looked at the sheet. And I was off that night. Thank you, Jesus. I was off. So I went and I found a broom closet. They had mops and shit in there. Everything. The little ringer bucket. I turned the light out, I shut the door, and I stayed in there until it was time to go home because I was not going to go to wrestling court. I don't know what they would have done. 
All I know is the fact that I'm an enhancement talent, you know, I might've got, I might've, might've got charged more, you know, I don't know if I'd have been found guilty, which I probably would have because they basically want you to just plead your case and grovel and, you know, hey, I'm sorry. And I'm a dick and, you know, punish me. You know, I, I, you know, it's a fun thing. It's, it's to break the monotony. I'm just glad that, I'm glad that I hid in that closet because I, I didn't want to go through with it. I really didn't. Excellent. I could certainly understand that. I wanted to ask you, Chris, uh, about your time uh, working uh, a wrestling challenge taping with the British Bulldog. Harry Smith, a friend of mine, recently worked the Great North Wrestling event uh, July the 15th in Smith Falls. Great guy, uh, very, very uh, skilled competitor and has uh, a number of uh, stories about his dad just wanted to get your insights into that particular uh, match. If, if you may have worked them uh, other times, but that's uh, the one that I could, could find. That was the first time. And that was actually, that was my second match in the WWF. My first one was on Monday night raw in Poughkeepsie, New York against uh, the smoking guns. And the next night we were in Lowell, Massachusetts, and it was me and the British Bulldog. So he was running late and um, I wanted to get with him. And, you know, he was running late, finally gets there. And I'm like, hey, I'm Chris Nelson. Actually, I was going by Chris Avery back then because I wanted to piss off my ex-girlfriend. I just took her last name. Um, so her dad was like one of my number one fan. So it was also a shout out to him when he would see his name on TV, you know, and he would always tell her, you should have married him. Look, he's on TV. True story. Um, so I'm like, dude, you know, Hey, you want to talk? He's like, oh yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk. And he kept putting me off and putting me off. And he was laughing about it. You know, I already knew the match would be easy, but I wanted it was, I was nervous. You know, I was 19 years old and I was nervous as hell. So I just wanted that reassurance. So literally like right before his music starts, right, right before they're taking me to the ring, he finally comes up and he's like, Oh, you know, I do the running slam and you know, let's just have fun. All right. So we called nothing. I go out there, he comes in, you know, we do a little thing. And I go down for the for the standing suplex. He gets me up. We wobble a little bit. Then he straightens out. I straighten out straight up. And we were I was upside down for 53 seconds. Now, if you watch wow. the video of it, they had to cut out like 25 seconds of it to keep the match as short as it was, but we actually counted it off together while I was still up there. So it was 53 seconds. I was up there. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I'm going to say now I've seen one that lasted 36 seconds. I saw it like last year and I'm like, I still got you beat. That's okay. Yeah. But yeah, that was, he was a super nice guy. He was so easy to work with. He was so funny. Like, he knew I was young, and I wanted to get that match, like, you know, planned out. And he was just ribbing me. He was just messing with me. 
he's just having fun. You know, he's like, and I get that now, you know, when I was 19, I was like, oh my God, I just want to talk to him. I don't want to screw up, you know, shit. You know, 30 years later, I'm like, oh, well, it was what it was. Yeah, the apple definitely does not fall too far from the tree. Harry is a, a tremendous talent, and he he will be coming on the Cheap Heat Podcast Empire for an interview very soon. Maurice, excellent. And I actually I actually met him. Um, I met him when he was training in Florida Championship Wrestling under Steve Kern. Mm-hmm. I was there at the facility one day, and he was one of the he was one of the students, and I talked to him and talked to him about working with his dad and stuff. So he was very. Um, Nat- Natty Neidhart was there. The Bella Twins were there. Kofi Kingston was there. Um, that's all I can remember that were there. But that's I I met him there. Good kid. Yeah, and one I of the good guys. Yeah, talent. I mean, my God, what a talent! You know. Oh. Yeah, he's st- he's still he's still destined for great things on a on a higher level. I just feel he hasn't got that for whatever reason. He just hasn't got the. The, the green light yet but it's coming it's coming maybe maybe he'll be like aj styles and you know come fair point you know 15 years too late you know later than he should have i mean you know what i mean who knows but i think i, I definitely think he needs to finish his career out there or at least take a three-year break and come see wwf you know build up your father's legacy again you're building his up so people remember him and now you're building your own you know, I mean, I think that's a, and you know, WWF, they'll eat that stuff up, man. If they can think of the video packages if, of him sitting there, it's like Cody and Dusty, you know, of him sitting there looking at a pair of his dad's boots, something like that, man, they, they can make so AW, much money. AEW you know? should have that guy booked for Wembley in, in three weeks time. There's going to be fucking 90,000 people there in that stadium. So he's he's still not on there, is he? I mean, I haven't heard anything about him being on there. Not officially, but we'll see what happens. But I think they should do something like that with him. He, I mean, he could show up. Yep. My next question, Chris, was on WCW. It was just on um, when, obviously, you were there kind of when Eric Bischoff came in and you were still kind of there when he got that big promotion. What was he like? And did you notice much of a change in him as he kind of rose the ranks there? My introduction to Eric Bischoff was at a Disney taping at an at an all wrestler meeting, and this was right when he took over. Um, and all of us were sitting at the at the sound stage. You know, the whole group of us were there, and he was talking. And I don't remember much about what he said, but what I do remember is when he was referring to us, the enhancement guys, he actually called us jobbers. And because he said more, something to the effect of, and and for you jobbers out there, um, and he said something like that. And it never really bothered me, but I mean, it's like, I never heard Vince McMahon say that, you know? I mean, it's, it, it, he knows that's an offensive term, you know? I mean, it's, it's 90% of wrestlers don't like it. You know, it's an offensive, it's an offensive term. And most wrestlers punch the shit out of somebody for saying that, you know, and he's, you know, 
just completely I didn't for you jobbers and I think I just toned it out after that I I don't remember much about it but that was my introduction to him I had never met him that was the first time that I that I saw him was that meeting but I sure remember what he said that part of it ain't no ain't no mistake in that one Jack well, I, I noticed in your in your resume that you worked uh, a jacked taping against Perry Saturn, and that was approximately, I guess, nine months. Correct me if I'm wrong, but about nine months or so before his match against uh, infamous match against Mad Dog Mike Bell. And I two two part question again that I'm famous for. One, yep. what was what was your experience in terms of working Perry? And then secondly, what did you think of that situation that, that appeared to be uh, horrendously out of character for Perry as a general rule? Well, and, and the good part about this, Jack, is I do actually have a dog in this fight uh, because my tag team partner, my brother, uh, Vito Danucci, Larry Brandon, uh, one half of the three-time NWA World Tag Team Champions, um, he wrestled Perry and I was the one that booked him to wrestle Perry. I didn't book him to wrestle Perry, but I got him there, you know, on the show. Um, Perry had, all right. I had, I wrestled him in Lafayette, Louisiana. We had a great match, but Perry forgot one of his own spots early in the match. And I had to cover it by taking over on him for a little while, but I covered it when he wasn't there and we gelled and everything was fine. He wasn't stiff, um, anything like that. Then the Mike Bell thing happened and we all knew Mike Bell because, you know, Mike was on everything too. Um, you know, all the Florida guys were running to the Northern guys cause they would book us, you know, we would always, run into him or see him wherever. So we knew each other very well. And that, you know, Mike was not one to sandbag. He wasn't going to sandbag anything. He wouldn't have done anything crazy. Um, he went out there and worked his ass off. You know, he really did. Great guy. Um, so they did that to Mike Bell. Then I sent a young man named Brian Gamble to Lafayette, Louisiana. Now, Brian was a former black, he's a black belt in karate. He's also a former American gladiator and uh, was on roller jam uh, for a while. And he's a very accomplished martial artist. Well, he came back from Lafayette, Louisiana the next day and had two black eyes because I saw them. And I said to him, what happened? And he said, Perry beat the shit out of me. So this is now two weeks after he beat up Mike Bell. He said he freaked out and he beat the shit out of me. Holy shit. So now they're about to come on the Florida loop. So now we're in Miami. And my tag team partner is scheduled to wrestle Perry Saturn. So... I was the match before. I think I wrestled Crash Holly the match before. Um, and Vito was in there. <laughs> I didn't watch any of the match. But when I came, when Vito came back, 
I said to him, Vito, and he just kept walking. He was so badly concussed that he didn't even hear me calling him. I helped him get dressed, and then I found him in the parking lot walking around. And I'm like, Vito, and I'm like, Vito, and I'm like, Larry. I literally had to go get him and stop him. He was so badly concussed. So what had happened was earlier that day, Shane had got into an argument with Perry and it was a heated argument and Vito actually overheard it. And he came to me and he said, boy, it ain't going to be a good night for me. Perry's in a bad mood. And Vito didn't do anything to piss him off. But all of a sudden out of nowhere, and I saw the tape, I didn't see it live because I was blowed up, but I saw the tape. And Perry just out of nowhere just headbutts him and hit him right right in the middle of his forehead. And as soon as that happened, my partner, was, he was gone. He was blank. He still finished the match. I don't know how he did it. He doesn't remember it. But it was, I think, a week later, Perry got fired. That was the final straw. And it started with Mike Bell. It went from Mike Bell to Brian Gamble to Vito DiNucci. And they had just had enough. And that argument with Shane that he had that day, it, it definitely didn't help. You know, it was already a bad situation, but I mean, they were, they were doing some yelling and cussing and, you know, bad situation. Yeah. I, I don't think that that part of the story has ever been told. It, it was portrayed no, that it was isolated. Yes. They, they said that Brian Gamble told Perry Saturn that he this was his hometown and he had all his family out there and that he needed to get a couple spots in. WWF said that to cover their ass. This was 2001. It was 2001. And here the kids got two black eyes because you got, you got the Dershey writers reporting the truth and you got WWF coming back and saying, no, they're lying, you know. He said he was from Louisiana and I had to get my shit in, brother. No, it never fucking happened. The kid had never been to Louisiana. You know what I'm saying? I know the kid because I booked the kid myself. I wrestled him a thousand times. He's a good kid, good martial artist. You know, he probably would have beat the fuck out of Perry, too, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that, that is definitely. Because, yeah, that kid didn't do anything wrong. My partner didn't do anything wrong. And fucking Mike Bell didn't do anything wrong. You know, we fuck up at times. You know, sometimes we fuck up. I've done it myself. I did it with Johnny B. Bad and I did it with the Hardy Boys. Sometimes shit happens and you just have a fucking blank. But even if that happens, you still don't have the right to just, just beat the shit out of somebody. You know, you know, that doesn't give you the right to do it. Now, if they're unsafe and they're punching you too hard or whatever, you know, and they're just not safe, and you want to give them a receipt or tag them, kick the shit out of them, that's good for the business, whatever, you know, but bullshit. No, God. that's, uh, that's, that's, def- that's definitely information that's not out into the, uh, the public discourse and uh, certainly portrays Perry as uh, unprofessional, to say the least. Well, and he, Maurice. And he was at that time. And, and like I said to Maurice, when I went on uh, the, the last the last hour when, when I went on about Lex Luger, you know, I was pissed off because he was all fucked up on drugs. But like I, like I said to Maurice, 
I'm not mad at him, man, because I did the same thing myself. You know, there were times when, when, I mean, I wasn't fucked up in the ring, but I was fucked up and, and I was not in a good place, you know? And so I, I understand what that's like. I know what Perry's, what, what he went through. I know what, what all of the guys went through and I'm lucky that I didn't die. I've overdosed, you know, I woke up miserable. I mean, absolutely miserable. And I've watched all, uh, a whole bunch of my friends die, you know, and I'm just, I'm lucky that, that I got out alive, you know, I got out alive and, and I really shouldn't have because I wanted to die. You know, I really did. I wouldn't have killed myself, but you know, when I got injured and my career ended, like everything went bad in my personal life at the same time I got hurt and I just didn't care. You know, and I'm in the process. I'm in the process of of writing a book, um, just from a different perspective. Because, you know, not too many jobbers out there have books. I've seen a couple, um, but you always get the stuff from the big guys, the Hogans and the you know the Flares and yeah. this and that. But yeah. you got guys like me and Vito Danucci and Buck Quartermain and and Bob Cook and guys like that, Jeff Bradley, that were amazing at what they did. They don't get the recognition, you know, and and that's kind of why I'm writing the book, you know, and and it's a lot. It's also just to get a lot of shit out that I worked out in therapy, you know, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, when when you when you become a person like that for even a little amount of time, you know, you burn a lot of people and you don't mean to do it. You know, it's, you're sick. You know, you're not you're not trying to do it. And, and sometimes you can repair the wounds and a lot of times you can't. And I've, I've seen too many of my friends from this business die too young with too much. They never got to say, you know, and it's after shit, I ain't trying to get depressing, but it's, <laughs> it's the truth. And it's a sad yeah, part of the yeah. sad part of the business because I got to hang out. And I got to be on the road with those guys from the late 70s and the 80s. Those were the guys that, that, that broke me in and that we talked and that I was on the road with, you know, and I was in Puerto Rico with and driving all over the U.S. and all over the place in foreign countries. And, you know, those are the guys that taught me how to survive in the Cayman Islands and Puerto Rico and people trying to stab me and shit. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, you know, it's it, it's those those were the guys and those guys just never got the credit they deserve you know 100 percent. those territory guys especially the guys from florida because you know florida championship wrestling i can tell you right now there's a lot of people that don't get along in the wrestling world but for the most part the guys here in florida everyone looks out for each other you know we do a legends lunch every uh every third month and we try just to honor people that, you know, from the past. And it's a community. And, and you know, I'm fortunate enough to be on the plaque. And I thank Brian Blair and Bob Cook for that. And, you know, Florida wrestling has always been a community. And, you know, we all still play golf together if we can. Usually I can play about three holes and my damn shoulders hurt. But, uh, you know, we all try to get together. And, and that's how wrestling should be. And, you know, that's uh, – that's the people that I love and the wrestling that I love, you know, 
Damn, I got sappy. I'm sorry. Damn, <laughs> I feel like I'm on the young and the restless. And my, <laughs> I, my, my, my next my next person that I was going to bring up wasn't wasn't too much of a happy case either. I was going to ask you about your time working and wrestling with Chris Benoit, and then obviously there's no need to get into what happened there in no, the end. But what was your experience of him like when you did work together? We, you know, we would. We were all taking pills at that time and I had shared pills with Chris. Um, you know, um, I had shared pills with Eddie, Eddie and I used to have the same doctor for a while. So, you know, we were pretty much getting the same things and, um, that's what they do. What was the question? Just your, oh, your Sorry. yeah, yeah. Horrible. I'm still thinking about five minutes ago. Um, no, but we would, but I never, I never saw him to where he was either inebriated out of it or not, you know, not cognitively there. He was always there. I mean, he kept to himself a lot, but, you know, I never saw him. He was just real quiet. You know, um, Eddie was, Eddie was, he was, you know, the life of the party. Um, but you know, my, my favorite part about Eddie and he had my favorite WCW match of mine is against Eddie and I love Eddie. And I told the doctor, I said, dude, I saw Eddie one time at WWF and he was just, he was just out of it. And Eddie was not in a good place. And I told the doc, I'm like, please stop, you know, stop writing him all these pills. I mean, he's, you know, so then Eddie gets clean and he's clean and he's sober for two years. And that's when he has a heart attack, brushing his teeth. That's what kills me. You know, it's like, and I'll tell you what really kills me is Hack Myers. Hack and I, we partied together. And... You know, God, I love Hack. And Hack got himself clean. Hack got clean. He was doing good. He was two years sober. He was working hard with his brother-in-law. He was doing really, really good. Hack Myers went to the doctor and they found two lumps in his head. So they had to go in there and they got him and come to find out it's not cancer. Everything's good. All right, we're going to let you out of the hospital tomorrow. He gets out of the hospital, goes home, starts feeling bad. Keeps feeling bad. Keeps feeling bad. So finally, after like five days, he goes to the hospital. Comes to find out when he was in the hospital getting the surgery, he got meningitis. And because he had waited so long, it had been eating his, eating away and eating away and and. By the time he got there, he was in a coma the next day and he died. And, you know, I got to say goodbye to him. His sister put the phone up, you know, to his ear and I got to say goodbye to him. And, and that was great. But, you know, some people think that Hack died of an overdose because, you know, Hack was a well-known partier and he didn't, you know, he didn't. He died because he caught something in the hospital having surgery, you know, and 
That's the one thing I want people to know about Hack. Hack was the best. He was the best guy in the world. Funniest guy. Oh my God. Mangina. Oh, no. <laughs> the only guy I know that can get kidnapped in the Bahamas. And he's not from a rich family. Hack was poor as hell, but he got kidnapped in the Bahamas. That's a story for part three. Trust me. Um, but Hack was, you know, Hack was my, Hack was my man. You know, it's, it's, I'm tired of losing people, you know, I really am. And it, you know, it just, it, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We'll let, we'll, cause we're, we're on the hour mark now. So what I'll do is I'll turn it back over to, to Jack and he might try lighten the mood here for the last question and we'll see what we can do. And it looks like we will have to go for a part three. I'm actually doing a special show next Tuesday. I think at 7 p.m. Eastern, I should be hitting 1 million views on YouTube. So it's a little party next Tuesday. We might get you on as well. I would love to. I, w- I would love to. I yeah, feel like, I, I feel like you guys are like long distance cousins now. I mean, you know, like, I mean, I, I would hug you both, but we're in separate places. Virtually Jack's closer, probably. I could probably get to Jack closer, but, mm. you know. Do you I- have long arms? No. 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 Okay. Well, we'll have to work short, on that then. I'm, I'm a short, fat, white guy from Polk County, Florida. I, you know, there's there's no athletic anything. All good. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, your experience working the uh, Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan in WCW, and as as uh, collateral questions here. One, do you have a Kevin Sullivan impression? And secondly, do you have any interesting non-in-ring uh, Kevin Sullivan stories? Because I have one from the recent past that I'd love to share with the viewership here that might uh, be entertaining. But you first, Chris. Well, Kevin and I dated the same woman. Not at the same time. <laughs> That's what I thought you meant. We did, uh, we did uh, date the same woman. Um, uh, Kevin, he was the first bad guy that I, uh, he's on the poster behind me right there. Actually, his name is right, right there. That was the first show I ever went to Jack was that one right there. I found the original poster and I had to put it up there because that's the whole genesis of wrestling for me. And I know we're running late, so I'm going to make it quick, but, um, See what I did. What was the question again? Kevin, your any Kevin Sullivan Sullivan stories? All right, yes, and an impression. Yes, he was. I'll do the impression first. He he comes up to me at WCW one day and he goes, "Hey, hey, Chris, can I uh, can I talk to you for a minute?" Well, yeah. So he pulls me in the office. I'm thinking I'm getting fired. Shit, he's in there with Scott Norton, and he goes. He goes, ah, and, you know, Norton here is coming back from surgery, you know, and uh, we want to do like a, we want to put him over really strong, really strong. And, um, you know, you're a really good baby face. So, you know, I want you to go out there and uh, we want to do something a little different, though. Uh, we want to do something on the outside. All right. So I'm thinking, you know, well, the ring's on a spinning platter, you know, we're in Orlando and it's on wood. I said, you want to do like a body slam? Well, you know, brother, uh, 
We were thinking about doing a power bomb. No problem, Kevin. Whatever you need, sir. And I went. I, I went and did it. Uh, but the first time I wrestled him, like I said, first time I ever wrestled him was um, I think it was Smyrna, Georgia, and he came out in the purple robe. And instantly, I was back in 1984, watching him walk down the aisle to Thriller by Michael Jackson with the snakes and with Nancy and with Abuna Dean and, 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 and everybody. And, you know, I, was, I went right back to that. And then all of a sudden, I hear the bell ring. And it kind of snaps me back into it. And I see Kevin running at me, and he just absolutely flowers the shit out of me. Um, Kevin never called anything with me. He would, he would see my name and he would see me and he would walk by and hit me on the stomach a little bit. And he'd go, you know what I do, brother? That was it. I think I had him. I probably had him about eight, eight or nine times. Um, tree of woe. I mean, I always got hit in the balls. There's no getting around that. Because he was the perfect size just to ram you in the balls with his, with his whole body. Um, great guy, though. I learned so much from him. And great guy. Love him to death. We we had the pleasure of uh, bringing Kevin in for Great North Wrestling for our 15th anniversary show on May the 6th. And uh, Kevin had a quite a arduous journey in terms of the flight from where he is getting into Ottawa, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, my, my Kevin Sullivan story that uh, will go in uh, my book someday, if there ever is such a thing is we, uh, we got in quite late to uh, the airport, went to the hotel, stayed up for a couple hours, had some, uh, some adult beverages, whatnot, went to bed. I was up after about three hours and then Kevin came out when I was sitting at the table, uh, working out, uh, logistics for the show. And he was, uh, naked as a jaybird saying, brother, what are we going to do tonight? And, and he proceeded to lay things out for me with that incredible mind, but in 100% naked for about two minutes and that goes in the file of things that you do not forget and part of this business that you just can't put a price on. That would be, he, he probably did that to see if he could make you feel uncomfortable. No, I know sold it. You did the exact right thing. Thank you very much because most people would have just, you know, like they would have probably been in therapy the next day talking about that. Like, I just don't know how to feel. He had his Johnson in my face and I don't know how that made me feel then. And I don't know how it makes me feel now. Well, I was in therapy, so I know all about it. So, you know, I, you know, he was probably, you know, ribbing you. And if he got any type of a crazy response, he would have been telling somebody instantly, let me tell you what I just did to Jack. I got it good. <laughs> have my dick in his face. He don't know what to do, brother. I was getting ready to stuff my balls down his throat. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, wrestlers are sick fucking people. Okay? We, I mean, you're talking about grown men in the middle of winter. It's zero degrees outside. We're driving in a minivan. 
People will lock the windows and fart and turn the heat on full blast. And if you've never smelled a protein steroid fart in zero degree weather right outside of Poughkeepsie, New York, then you are not living. Trust me. Just another day at the office. Yes, it was. <laughs> right. We might we might reconnect then next week. Uh, it seems I'm going to have a good few people on the show. I'll just have to touch base with a couple of people and we'll see. You're, we just, might have like... you're just getting this D-roll done before you get the A and Bs to come in. I know the deal. I'm okay with that, Maurice. I'm all right, man. Don't worry. Ain't, we don't have no heat with each other. I understand. I've been putting people over for 31 years. Be great to have you back again, myself Tremendous. and Jack. Myself and Jack will be back tomorrow night at is it six p.m. Eastern with uh, the crippler Brian Costello in a very rare appearance. So Brian, if you're watching this, I hope you show up. <laughs> hey, it's fun. Make sure you show up. Yeah, we'll see you Thanks guys. Thanks a minute, guys. Thanks very much, right. Chris. Absolutely, you guys have a good one. Take care. Pleasure, guys. All right, bye bye. <laughs>